so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Well, in today's episode, I'm joined by doctors Jessica and Robert Justra, who are co-editors of a new volume called Calvinism for a Secular Age, a 21st century reading of Abraham Kuyper's Stone Lectures. And today we talk about Kuyper's influence as well as a reformed approach to our secular age. Jessica Justra is an assistant professor of religion and theology at Redeemer University and an associate researcher at the Neo-Calvinist Research Institute at the Theological University at Compton. She's an editor and translator of Herman Bovink's Reformed Ethics, as well as an associate editor for the Bovink Review. Robert Justra is an associate professor of politics and international studies, as well as the founding director for the Center for Christian Scholarship at Redeemer University College. He's also the author of The Religious Problem with Religious Freedom and co-author of The Church's Social Responsibility, The Persecuted Church, and How to Survive the Apocalypse, as well as God and the Global Order. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Jess and Rob, I'm really excited to have you guys on the podcast today, and so thank you for taking time to do this. As we get going, can you tell us a little bit about each of your all's work in your respective fields and what prompted you guys to partner together to produce a volume like this? Jess, why don't you start? Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much for having us. It's a delight to talk about this book together. Uh, And I'll start with me, I guess. What got me going uh, and the question of the kind of Kuyperian tradition, honestly, I come by it in some way by birth. I was born into a Dutch immigrant family. uh, And so all of this Dutch theology has really been something that I initially absorbed more around the dinner table and the living room than I did in a classroom. (laughs) And so I grew up with, you know, family that knew of these people and these ideas and really lived them out. Um, The kind of Kyperian world-viewing language, things like sphere sovereignty, all of these kinds of big theological terms that you see pop up in our book and in Kuyper's thought weren't things that I was familiar with. But the kind of ethos of what Kuyper was on about was definitely a part of just my whole life uh, growing up. I really saw what it looked like to put faith in action in every part of 
um, your life by the example of my parents and my community. And it wasn't really until university that I found out this kind of way of being and this way of living out one's faith that had been so prominent, again, in my home, in my church, had a name and was part of a tradition and had these key figures. Uh, and I learned about them in, for the first time, really, at Calvin College, now Calvin University. And I learned about them in the biology department. <laughs> um, it was my professor. His name is David Warner. He is a biologist. And he's the one who, when I came to him and said, you know, how, how do I think about this as a Christian? Um, I remember I was particularly struggling with questions of origins at that point, um, how to think about my faith and some of the scientific findings that seem to be being what were taught all around me. And I had no sense of how to do that. And he was the one that pointed me towards this Calvinist tradition, um, but specifically to the person of Kuiper. And ever since then, I really was hooked. I remember I went to seminary after that, a bit of an odd jump from the biology classroom to seminary, but that's what I did. And I told another one of my professors uh, that I was interested in Abraham Kuyper. <laughs> and I didn't really know much else. So I said, that's a thinker that I knew. Uh, and it was someone that I was really interested in because I, I kind of liked what he was on about uh, in this big world embracing, world viewing picture of faith. And so then he, he also, this professor, his name was John Bolt, uh, introduced me to Kuiper's colleague and contemporary, who also pops up in this book, uh, Herman Bovink, who's really what I've spent most of my academic study on, Bovink's thought. And if you know Herman Bovink, you also get to know Abraham Kuiper uh, in deep and wonderful ways. And so that's what got me there. It was really these kind of beautifully providential moments throughout my educational journey with key people um, like David Warners and John Bolt, and then later uh, Richard Mao, who actually writes in our book. But it started around the kitchen table uh, with my parents and the people in my community, really from their understanding of and kind of implicit living out of this big Dutch Reformed vision for life and faith. That's where it began. And I later learned that that those ideas came from a person and his name was Kuiper. I come to this conversation as a bit of an interloper in some ways. Uh, I am not a theologian. I am not even a philosopher. Uh, I'm a political scientist. Uh, and so what initially drew me to some of Abraham Kuiper was uh, a problem that was put in front of me uh, in the first year of college for me. And the first year of college for me, which will date me a little bit, was uh, September of 2001. And, uh, you know, I think we, we saw in that month and in the decades that followed that we had some pretty big questions about religion and politics that needed better answers than the ones that we had. And that's where I found. So I, I, I came to Kuiper as a political scientist trying to kind of struggle with, you know, problems of pluralism, problems of deep diversity, problems of justice. And, uh, you know, unlike Jess, you know, I am a simple social scientist. And so I, I don't read Kuiper in the original. You know, my Dutch is barely functional enough to make my way through a restaurant. And even then I get a lot of dirty looks. So, uh, I, you know, she works in the primary sources. She works through the originals. You know, she's really the theologian who's the expert in the tradition here. I'm the, uh, you know, I'm the amateur enthusiast, you know, the sanctified through the uh, better educated wife um, who is here saying, you know, look, I think these ideas of Kuiper, um, while there are problems with them, and we will, we, we will dig into that along the way, I'm sure, is nonetheless especially ripe for a lot of the really practical and urgent problems of our moment and our time. Uh, and so that was one of the things that brought me to this literature, uh, and one of the things that made me really excited to sort of repackage, repurpose, re-examine 
these sort of original lectures on Calvinism uh, a century after Kuiper's death. That was the original hope to kind of, you know, move these around a little after 2020, and, uh, and we're delighted they'll show up in 2022. Yeah, and this book is it's something that I really encourage listeners to grab because it is it's very rich. There's uh, so much that we can unpack. I mean, we could obviously spend an entire podcast just on each chapter, much less a whole podcast just talking about the book as a whole. Um, but there's so much here. So I want to introduce, kind of step back a little bit uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with neo-Calvinism or the Dutch Reform Movement, specifically Abraham Kuyper. And uh, Jess, we'll have to have you back on one time to talk about Herman Bobbing because uh, he has been an incredibly influential figure in my life as well. Uh, but I'll save that for another podcast. Um, but just as, can you guys give us a little introduction, I guess, really brief introduction to kind of neo-Calvinism and then ditch reform movement? Because I think some listeners may be vaguely familiar with these figures or these terms, but that kind of helps to set the stage, especially um, as we reflect on his stone lectures that were uh, delivered in 1898 at Princeton Theological Seminary for the book. What is neo-Calvinism and what is this Dutch reform movement? Well, I think, uh, for my money, the best, I think, definition comes from a thinker who is an emeritus professor where Rob and I both work, Redeemer University, and his name is Al Walters. Uh, and what he says, and I, I think he's absolutely right, is that neo-Calvinism is first and foremost part of the great small C Catholic theological tradition of the church. It tries to root itself in this long conversation, uh, much like John Calvin, when he pointed back to the work of the Church Fathers, uh, neo-Calvinism points back to the work of John Calvin, and it kind of situates itself within that broad, small-c Catholic Church. But it does so at a particular time. And so neo-Calvinism, first and foremost, small-c Catholic Church, but then it's a particular movement in 19th century Netherlands, <laughs> and that matters. So when we think of neo-Calvinism, really two major figureheads come to mind. First, Abraham Kuyper, who we're talking about today, and then his colleague, his younger colleague. So first, Kuyper functioned as a mentor for this colleague, and later they would work together, and that's Herman Bobbink. And these two thinkers kind of represent the pillars of neo-Calvinism, but then their thought and their work is traced out through future generations. And then Al Walter says the best way you can describe what they were on about is this particular relationship between nature and grace. And they work this relationship between nature and grace out in their theological thought, in their political and social thought, in their cultural engagement, and beyond. Uh, and that relationship is that grace restores nature. It's not antagonistic to nature. It's not above nature. It's not alongside nature. But God's grace in Jesus Christ restores God's original intent. And you can see that since we're talking about the stone lectures, I'm going to share, if it's okay, one of my favorite quotes of Kuiper's from the stone lectures that really gets at this. And he says this, he says, verily Christ has swept away the dust with which man's sinful limitations had covered up this world order and has made it glitter again in its original brilliancy. So God's grace isn't antagonistic to the things of this world, but it's restoring God's original plan for his creation. Uh, and we see that, that all comes out into this huge picture of who God is and this wonderful picture of a sovereign God who reigns over all, restoring nature through his grace. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a wonderful, rich introduction. I mean, I think the one part, and I mean, you know, Jess has emphasized this too in her writing, the one part of neo-Calvinism, I think, that captures some of the, some of the genius of Calvinism um, is the emphasis in particular on the sovereignty of God. Sometimes when people talk about Calvinism, you know, they get very kind of uh, uh, sort of hung up on soteriological questions. And those are important questions. Um, and, you know, neo-Calvinists resonate with them, too. Um, but there's a kind of prior thing, and that's the kind of sovereignty of God. That's who God is. And that's what you start to see worked out, especially in these lectures on Calvinism, right? Because uh, uh, he's saying, you know, look, if God, who is sovereign, you know, over all of creation, you know, this favorite Ky famous Kuiper quote, you know, there is no square inch and so on, of which God does not cry, that belongs to me. If that's true, then we've got to work it out. We've got a big task, you know. Richard Mao has this wonderful story he tells in Calvinism in the Las Vegas airport where he says, you know, if we get too mixed up, you know, if we get too sort of focused purely on the kind of, you know, soteriological questions of Calvinism, we sometimes lose out on the, you know, uh, so what question. So God has saved us, but what has he saved us for, you know? And it would, it would be sort of, you know, bizarre. He actually tells the story, and now it's a little bit on the nose because he, he, he did it a number of years ago. Uh, he tells the story, he says, imagine somebody ran for president of the United States and they got elected and they spent the next four years talking about how amazing their election was and what a fantastic election it was and how, look at them, they're the president. You'd say, well, look, you know, stop talking about that. You know, once you're elected, we want to know what you're for. What are you going to do, right? What is your response in gratitude to that election. And that, to me, that is a great line into historic Calvinism. And that's the emphasis, I think, that Kuiper and the neo-Calvinist tradition uh, shines through in these lectures of his. Yeah, so just to dig in a little bit on that, I mean, obviously, you've talked about the concept of sovereignty. I think, especially as you've rightfully mentioned, a lot of folks get hung up on Calvinism, specifically in those soteriological questions, or questions of salvation. What specifically is sphere sovereignty? You hear that a lot, especially around kind of the Kuyperian tradition. What is sphere sovereignty and what role does that play uh, for Kuyper on a myriad of different ideas? I mean, the book itself, you have from art to race to politics, uh, there's so many different issues. So what is sphere sovereignty and then how does that play into a lot of the issues that you discuss in the book? Can I do a cut into this first in terms of what problem it solves, and then Jess can give us the correct answer in terms of the sort of theology and philosophy? Because so often my students sort of come to me and say, oh, you know, Kuiper, you know, this sphere of sovereignty business, you know, I have searched the scriptures backward and forward, and nowhere have I found Kuiper's notion of sphere of sovereignty. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, that's true on one level, but I also, I, I also think it's not. Sphere of sovereignty answers a very practical question, right? And it answers the question, if God is sovereign— over not only the universe and not only human hearts, but also all of our overall of our social and political and aesthetic lives, right? If that is so, what does that mean? How do we understand the authority of God to these different areas of human life? And I don't care what kind of a Christian you are, right? If you are a Christian, that's a problem. You have to answer that question. I mean, it's a great problem in many ways. You know, how do we how do we recognize, how do we live in gratitude toward the grace, you know, of, of what this God has done for us? Um, and I think that's part of the puzzle that every Christian needs to answer. And that's the problem that sphere sovereignty sets out to help us understand, to help us give away into understanding how to live lives of grateful obedience. And now over to Jess, who can, who can correct uh, or <laughs> fill in the theology on that. No, I think that's absolutely right. That That is the question, really, um, the practical question that needs to be solved. And for Kuiper, then, 
he has a very particular way of solving that because of his deep, deep emphasis on God's sovereignty. So like Rob said, he takes the sovereignty question and he says, this is the dominating principle of Calvinism. God is sovereign over the whole cosmos. And he makes it really clear. He does this in the lectures and other places. He makes it really clear. God is sovereign over the whole cosmos, everything that exists. He goes to great lengths to say it's he's sovereign over visible things, invisible things, every sphere, every kingdom, all of them are accountable to God. And so then the question is, how does that get worked out in cultural and political life? How does God's sovereignty and God's authority relate to the spheres of human life? And when he says sphere, he means just this various institutions of society. He uses examples like education, church, state family, business, we never get from Kuiper a kind of systematic delineation of spheres. That's not his style, nor what um, he gives us. For some of that kind of systematic delineation, you can go on to a second-generation neo-Calvinist, Herman Doiveard, and you can get a little bit more of that. But that's not what Kuiper's on about. He's not trying to give us a kind of piece-by-piece picture of what every sphere is. He's simply saying spheres are institutions of society, and they're institutions that God, because he's sovereign, has made. These aren't kind of arbitrary things that humanity decided, oh, it seems good that we might gather together to learn, or it seems good that we might gather together to govern. No, it seems good because this is the structure and this is the way that God has made his creation to work. And so we have all of these spheres. We have things like education, church, state, family, business, art. All of these things are kind of potentials that God has built into creation for humanity to uncover and explore and go do something with. And now we need to know how they are related to God and each other. And so in sphere sovereignty, Kuiper is clear that each sphere has its own sense of limited authority. The church has a way of governing itself, and that way of governing itself is instituted by God. And the family has a way of governing itself, and that way of governing itself is instituted by God. And business has norms and ways for governing itself, and that way of governing itself is instituted by God. And on and on it goes for every sphere. And importantly, those ways are not the same. Richard Mao has this delightful, we're we're quoting him a lot already today in this podcast, and he's in our book as well. Uh, But he has this delightful little example uh, where he goes and says, you know, the way someone relates to each other and authority relates to these people in different spheres matters. So a mother and a son relate to each other in a particular way in the family, but say that mother is the owner of a shop and the son is an employee. They relate to each other in a different way there, and they would do that in other spheres too. And that matters (laughs) uh, because all of these spheres have different norms and governing and accountability. So a house is not a church. A church is not a business. (laughs) A business is not a school. But somehow, even though there are these distinct kind of spheres that have their own ways of governing themselves, that could seem like everything is kind of disconnected, (laughs) that there are just these random institutions all around doing their own thing. And Kuiper's point is that that's not how it's going to go. All of these spheres, even though they have their own kind of norms and ways of operating, they're distinct spheres, they're not disconnected because all of them live 
decorum Deo, one of Kuiper's favorite lines, before the face of God. And all of them are directly accountable to God. And so instead of God's authority being mediated, say, through the church, or God's authority being cut off from all of these kind of so-called, you might call them secular spheres in some pictures of the relationship between God and society, God's authority is not cut off from things like state and business and art, nor is God's authority mitigated through the church to state and business and art. All of these spheres are directly accountable to God, and God gives this kind of a limited sovereignty and limited authority to each sphere. So that's his basic idea, is that God is sovereign over all, yes, but then how do we understand the rightful and needing to be right exercised norms that happen in every sphere? How do we understand those relationships? Every sphere, Kuiper says, has some kind of authority, but it's limited and delegated from God. And then each of these spheres stands together alongside each other before God. So then he has another great line, Kuiper, in the lectures on Calvinism that says something like, the state can't be an octopus. It can't have its fingers in everything way too much because that is an overreach of spheres. Each sphere There's no sphere that is kind of above another sphere. Each sphere stands alongside each other, quorum Deo, before God's face and God's authority. No, I think that's a really helpful introduction. One of the things, I'm glad you keep bringing up Rich Mal because he's been really formative and really made an indelible mark on my life, um, especially as I teach worldview and ethics and philosophy. And one of the things that he does in his chapter is talk about Kuiper's worldview or the concept of a world and life view. So obviously the concept of a worldview is highly controversial in some circles uh, where some see it as an overly rationalistic concept, uh, leaving out kind of the disposition of the heart and our actions and how formative those things are. And others kind of go to the other side, but specifically on how Kuiper uses the word worldview or world and life view What does that mean for him, especially as we see throughout uh, Mao's chapter? And then how does Kuiper argue about how everyone, regardless of their religious faith, has a worldview? I think that's shocking to a lot of my students as I talked to them earlier, and they're like, I've never really thought about it that way. It makes sense. But how does Kuiper, and especially in these lectures, kind of play out this idea of a worldview or worldview as a concept? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, worldview has gotten a little bit of a bad name uh, in the last sort of couple of decades, partly because, you know, people perceive it as being overly rationalistic, you know, overly philosophical. I really don't think that has as much to do with Kuiper so much as the sort of reception of the term uh, worldview, particularly in its American context. And so there's, you know, some some interesting follow-up there, but it's really not the way Kuiper meant the term. I mean, uh, in many ways, Kuiper was way ahead of his time, philosophically and theologically. Um, the mainstream sort of secular academy will not come to many of the same basic conclusions that Kuiper comes to in the late 19th century in these uh, lectures on Calvinism uh, until the turn towards sort of ideas that they'll call postmodernism. And really, the kind of basic premise there is that everybody is from somewhere. Everybody believes things. Everybody's hearts are oriented towards things. I mean, in a way, the kind of, you know, the the, the postmodernist turn sort of rediscovered the Augustinian sort of premise that, uh, you know, our hearts are oriented toward things that we love. 
You know, this is what Jamie Smith talks about um, in his little book, You Are What You Love, or I think he might have taken the title from Taylor Swift's song, You Are What You Love. But still, I mean, I, whether it's Taylor Swift or Jamie Smith, they're all channeling this kind of basic Augustinian premise. And that that really is what Kuiper meant by it. Um, and, and he really talked about worldview as not just a set of kind of intellectual constructs, but the way that we believe things go in the world. Um, Charles Taylor talks about terms like social imaginary. Right? It's as embedded in practice as it is embedded in understanding. And that's where you need to remember that Kuiper is an enthusiastic Calvinist. And it's always a mistake, and it is sometimes a mistake, that neo-Calvinists make, um, where they take the kind of sort of Kuiperian, you know, life-transforming, you know, world-engaging vision, and they cut it off from the sort of, you know, fundamental kind of spiritual root of Calvinism, and I think that's a major mistake because this is where you can get these kinds of over-intellectualized or over-philosophical ideas. But for Kuiper, and I say this in the introduction, for him, worldview was very blue-collar theology. It's, it's very much about what he called the Kleinaliden, you know, the little people. Beliefs are about what's in our hearts. They're about what we love, not just about what we think. And so a belief is only proper and basic if it gets to the heart of how we think things really are, if it shapes and is shaped by the things we would give our lives for. Uh, and this is what he means by a worldview. And it's not something that only religious people have. You know, we're in the business of having worldviews. This is, again, a paraphrase of Charles Taylor, actually. We're in the business of having worldviews, having social imaginaries, long before we get into the practice of theorizing or articulating. We had them. We loved things. We believed things. We belonged to places. And that's the insight that Kuiper is giving us. And I think that that's an enormous and important insight to help us uh, understand our present age, um, and to depolarize some of the kind of rationalistic uh, ways of understanding worldview. That said, Al Walters, we've mentioned him already in this podcast. Uh, I asked him once, you know, should we get rid of worldview? You know, it's kind of got a bad brand. Should we talk about social imaginaries or something like that? And he said, you know, we could. You know, there are other terms like that that sort of have a certain amount of baggage, uh, you know, that we might dispense with. Plenty of them we could think about today. Evangelical among them, he said. But if we got rid of that term, we'd have to invent a new one that does pretty similar work because it's so fundamental in a way. So I don't know that it's worth getting rid of. And I agree with him. I, I, I don't know that it's worth getting rid of. I think it's, just, it, I think it's just worth accenting it in a more Augustinian Calvinistic way, which is exactly how Kuiper intended it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I'll just say that for Kuiper, and this is implicit in everything that Rob just said, but for Kuiper, this worldview necessarily had to encompass all of life. So for him, it needed to talk about three main things how we relate to God, how we relate to each other, and how we relate to the world. And so all of life, all of our experiences and our kind of living in this world was all bound up in this question for him. And every worldview needs to answer all three of those. How do we relate to God, each other, and the world? Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate about this work as well is that it's it's balanced in some senses. You're going to talk about the good in Kuiper, but you're not going to shy away from some of the more controversial or divisive kind of areas of his life um, and some of his thought as well. And you see this ranging. I mean, it's, it's funny as you look through um, each of the chapters, all of these things are not what you're supposed to talk about at the dinner table, uh, race and politics and uh, religion in the public square. And one of the that I really appreciate was that you included a contribution from my friend, Dr. Vincent Baycoat, uh, addressing some of uh, Kuiper's thought on race and racial issues. And I know that's particularly striking in the Stone Lectures 
and very problematic, some of the language that he uses surrounding race and some of his thoughts on that. Can you help to unpack that a little bit? What is Dr. Baker addressing in that chapter? And what are some of the areas uh, that we can learn from Kuiper, but we might kind of reframe and reshape to say that's not actually the best way to talk about that? Yeah, I'm happy to take the first cut on this. And then and Jess has actually done some really excellent theological work on this question. And I'll, I'll turn over to her some of the substance. But part of the premise behind this book, actually, um, the whole idea, you know, why, why do we go out and kind of, you know, write a new 21st century reception? I mean, in some ways, you know, you could say, arguably, you know, our times have changed. And so there's, you know, the opportunity for a sort of fresh set of eyes. And, and that's certainly true. But the project actually emerged because Jess and I had done uh, a little bit of teaching in different places uh, at our university. Uh, Jess had done some teaching at um, the other Redeemer, as we call it, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, um, I, and also uh, for a couple of think tanks, Cardiff Center for Public Justice and others. And what we had found is, and we'd been reading Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism in the original. So we'd been assigning them to people and they'd been reading them. And what we had found was that um, Kuiper the man was getting in Kuiper's way. Uh, uh, which is to say he was getting in the way of the good news (laughs) that's genuinely in the lectures on Calvinism, the good news that grace restores nature, the good news that this redemption of Jesus Christ is coming, has come, and touches every square inch of life. But when you read the lectures on Calvinism in the original, you can't help but be arrested by so many uh, examples of of, of major mistakes, you know, uh, that Kuiper made. In particular, uh, the question of race, I think, is front and center in the lectures on Calvinism. And Kuiper also had, I think, some um, fairly mistaken views on <laughs> gender as well. Um, but those don't actually show up in the lectures on Calvinism quite as much. So we didn't we didn't include them in this volume, but certainly uh, certainly on the question of race. So we said, you know, look, we, we need to, you know, we don't need to sort of have hagiography here. In fact, there's been too much hagiography, I think, in the neo-Calvinist tradition uh, for as, the, as as he sometimes called Father Abraham, you know, as though he made no sins, you know, he had no mistakes. No, he had really serious mistakes, actually, and he he was himself a sinful man, and you you know, it's 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 very clear when you read the lectures that it's there. Um, and far better to sort of work it out, show it alongside the genius. I mean, it is there, such rich genius in these lectures, and yet also some significant mistakes. And so, one of the reasons that we actually produced this whole book was to create an on-ramp for people who just stumbled over, either for uh, historical reasons, you know, it's just a difficult text to read in the original, or for Kuiper's mistakes. Um, They just couldn't get past some of the things that he said. So how can we help bring the best of Kuiper forward and his understanding of Calvinism while not sweeping the worst under the rug, but recognizing, naming it, and yet nonetheless bringing the fruit uh, of Kuiper's work for it. So that was the goal and that was the project. Um, and I know Jess has done some marvelous work, particularly on Herman Bavink and the image of God um, related to questions of race. And, and she's old friends with Vince as, as I am too, but they've, they've worked at the Center for Public Justice and elsewhere. And I, I know she just really enjoyed this chapter in particular. Yeah. So I'll just say a little bit more to pick up where Rob left off. In these lectures, Kuiper says deeply troubling things. And you know, in many of the places that I've been, and I know Rob's been, um, where we've talked about Kuiper, that hasn't always been part of the conversation. Uh, you know, you hear about Kuiper and his worldview, you hear about Kuiper and his theology, Kuiper and these majestic things that it seems like he's done, right? I mean, he excelled in so many areas, and that's often the impression, the only impression you're left with when it comes to Kuiper. And that's not a wrong impression, right? He, he was somehow, you know, 
He founded a university. He was head of a political party. He was prime minister. He wrote all of these things. He was a successful journalist. He did so much. And so, you know, it's not um, surprising that you would be left with this kind of feeling of grandiosity, but that can easily turn into this hagiography that Rob was talking about. And so we really are trying to take his full legacy seriously. And the lectures on Calvinism give us, you know, a clear insight into one of the major problems in Kuiper's thought. Uh, Vince goes through kind of piece by piece in his chapter, all of these various excerpts from the lecture where Kuiper just says horrible things about race. He talks about the inferiority of African societies. He references things like the curse of Ham. And he goes on and on to make just terrible mistakes that really do, fascinatingly enough, totally contradict things that he'll say in other parts of his theology, where he talks about the beauty of diversity and the multiformity of God's creation and how multiformity is just built into the fabric of creation. And he delights in that and he celebrates it and he sings the kind of praises of this wonderful God who has built a creation bursting with potential, bursting with diversity. And then out of the same mouth, he'll say, but there are inferiorities in African society. There are all of these things. And that's just, that's really hard to read. And it's also really hard to grapple with when, say, like Vince, you are introduced first to the man who loved diversity, and then second to the guy who says just these terrible things about people with skin that looks like yours. And so that's part of it. But the other part that needs to be talked about, I think, is that not in these lectures, but Abraham Kuyper, the man, is often associated with apartheid South Africa, which is yet another deeply grievous, deeply sinful instance of racial superiority, of racism, and of kind of social hierarchies built on these racist ideas. And it's important, Craig Bartholomew says this, Vince says this, many other people say this, it's important that we not draw too straight a line from Kuiper to apartheid South Africa. But it's also, I mean, we, we can't say that there's not some connection points there. Some of Kuiper's language of spheres and pillarization and his language about inferior and superior uh, races really does play a part in some of that development, even if it's not as straight a line as some might say. So then the question is, how do we grapple with this? And that's really what Vince takes on, right? The question that Vince is asking in this chapter is not, did Kuiper say some racist things? That is not a hard question uh, when we look at these Stone lectures or his other writings. That, that is a question with a clear answer. But the next question is a harder one and a really important one. What do we do with figures that have these bits of genius and wisdom and insight, but also have these things alongside of them that are really troubling and deeply sinful? How do we make sense of that? And so that's, I think, just here's where Vince, in all of his wisdom and creativity and insight, I think, shines. Uh, because he goes through kind of a historic then look at how people have treated Kuiper when they've really been confronted with this racism. How do they treat him? Um, and how do they receive his work? He has three kind of options 
Do they simply critique and reject him? Do they simply say, well, look at the historical times. He was a man of his time. What can you do? Do they say, you know, because he preached things like common grace or other theological themes, he necessarily gets himself into this kind of tricky or bad place? Or is there a different way? Do we, are we stuck with the options for reception of a figure like Kuiper that have been given to us, or can we do something different? Uh, and Vince kind of gives us another way of reading Kuiper, and I think a wonderful model for reading people like Kuiper. You know, it is, Kuiper is not the only theologian as of late to be really kind of seriously looked upon for major mistakes. Um, you know, a lot of mistakes these days in terms of people like John Howard Yoder, Karl Barth are more on the sexual side, but we still have these same questions. How do we deal with someone who has been so influential, has really helpful things to say, but made such grievous mistakes? And so what Vince does is put Kuiper in conversation with himself and help us see both Kuiper's brilliance along with his frailty and somehow accept both as kind of, in some ways, just the picture of what life is like as we live in the now and not yet. And Vince helps us in some ways be honest about the fact that Kuiper is both troubling and helpful. And we can, we can simply say that. And Vince gives us kind of language to do so. But I do want to say too, um, when it comes to, you know, the Kuiper was a man of his times, how could he possibly have said anything else? Turns out other people that were right in his circles did actually say something else. And I think that's important too, because then we can say, you know, Kuiper's colleague, Herman Bovink, had a very different picture of race. <laughs> and that matters. A, it matters because then we can see kind of neo-Calvinist legacy as a kind of fulsome, not just situated in one person, but it's broader than that. And we can kind of look at the riches of the broadness of the tradition and not just rely on one person. Um, and there Herman Bovink really does help us uh, because he has just these beautiful eschatological pictures of the image of God that is not just in one person. He says, we all are the image of God. Each of us is the image of God, but the image of God, and I'm not going to get this exactly verbatim, but I'll paraphrase it to the best of my ability. Uh, but the image of God is so big and so great and so grand that it cannot simply be encompassed in one person, but the fullness of humanity all together with all of their gifts together image God. And so he has this wonderful sense that we need each other and that our cultural differences, the way we've kind of taken God's call to go do something with this world, our cultural and national and ethnic and all of this diversity can actually come together to give us a more fulsome picture of who God is and a more fulsome picture of our own humanity. And so, yeah, when we, when we look at Kuiper and race, I think Vince is a really helpful guide for how to think through deeply troubling statements. But I think we can also hopefully look to the legacy, not just of Abraham Kuyper, but of Herman Bovink and his followers and students. Um, George Harink, who writes in our book, has done some really fascinating work to show the legacy of Bovink's own students on thought in South Africa in particular and how their teaching helped turn and change hearts on questions of apartheid. 
um, because of questions of the image of God and more. Yeah, and that's something I've always, I've long looked up to Vince, and I'm just really thankful uh, for his chapter in this book, especially. I mean, there's a host of things that we haven't even been able to touch um, in the book. And so I really encourage listeners to grab a copy of that. But as we end our time together, I always ask a very similar question. Uh, for folks who want to dig a little bit deeper into some of these ideas, whether it's Kuiper or Neo-Calvinism, the Dutch Reform Movement, or even Herman Bovink himself, which, Jess, we'll have to have you back on to talk. Um, as an ethicist, I've really benefited from his Reformed ethics. And I know you've spent a lot of time translating that and being part of that project. And so I'd love to have you on to talk about that soon. But what are some books that you all would recommend if folks want to dig a little bit deeper? I know we've talked about uh, Al Walters and his Creation Regained, which is a text I signed for my students. It's a really, really helpful text. Obviously, Lectures on Calvinism, the book that you all wrote, this kind of 21st century reading. What are some other resources that you would recommend folks if they wanted to dig a little bit deeper? I mean, in some ways, you know— Sad Anglos like myself, um, people who are working primarily in the English language, have been cut off from some of the genius of Kuiper uh, and some of the genius of Bavink and, frankly, much of the genius of the neo-Calvinist tradition generally, uh, uh, until about the last five or ten years or so. And so, you know, I'd be remiss um, when being asked a question, you know, where can we go um, to dig more deeply into some of these questions about Kuiper? Yes, of course, the original lectures on Calvinism, which are, are and have been widely available in English for a long time. But um, Lexham has produced an absolutely magisterial set under the very capable leadership of Dr. Jordan Baller. Uh, of an enormous amount of material that simply has not been available to the English world before. So, you know, prior to this point, you know, yeah, the English world talked about Kuiper a lot, but really we we had to turn, and still in many ways do, but have to turn to sort of Dutch theologians, Dutch experts, and people like Jess who are working in the original language and translating and editing and so on and so forth. Uh, but now, you know, simple social scientists like myself actually have the ability to go and read a lot of this primary material that we've never been able to read before. Um, so I really recommend, um, you know, the Lexham series. Uh, there's absolutely wonderful, rich material in there. I have used that material myself to do research on foreign policy and political theology to look at, for example, Kuiper's actual foreign policy when he was prime minister to compare that against, for example, the record of his own writings and research um, that have only freshly become available to someone like me. It's a rich, rich treasure trove, and I think we're just at the very beginning in the English world of being able to unpack a lot of that material. So I, 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 I for one, would really recommend checking out um, those resources for, for what would be a pretty deep dive. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, alongside those, which are just fantastic resources, um, I'll name a couple others. Uh, one is by uh, the author of the preface of our book, uh, Jim Bratt, who wrote the English biography on Abraham Kuyper. It's called Abraham Kuyper, Modernist Calvinist Christian Democrat. And that is a deep dive into who Kuyper was. There are pictures, which is just a delight. And it really gives this kind of fulsome picture of Kuyper's life and work. Uh, but if that uh, kind of probably 300 or so page book, maybe even more, is not really your style, uh, Richard Mao, also a contributor for this book, wrote an a short introduction to Kuiper and his thought entitled Abraham Kuiper, a short and personal introduction, which is also just a lovely kind of primer on Kuiper's main theological themes told from someone who, who studied Kuiper for his whole life. But I also would say when it comes to Kuiper's work, you know, um, his theological work that Rob highlighted, some of these uh, biographies, which 
um, get into a lot of his thought. But often when we think about Kuiper, we think about him as the politician and the theologian and the guy all out there in culture doing things. Um, and we don't often think of him as this deeply pious man that understood all of this coming from like uh, just the lifeblood of him, which was this deeply personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when we think of Kuiper, I think we should also think about his meditations. Uh, Kuiper wrote huge scores of meditations, and two of them are available to us in English. One is called Near Unto God, Daily Meditations from Kuiper on just various scripture. And another is called Honey from the Rock, more recently translated by Jim DeYoung. Um, and that's young Kuiper's meditations, which is interesting to hear him as a young man uh, reflect on God and who God is. But then I think it's worth noting that not everyone in the kind of Dutch reform tradition following Kuiper thought all of Kuiper's emphases were so good. <laughs> and some of them kind of thought some, this could lead you into a kind of cultural kind of transformationalist bent or lead you to disregard or downplay the importance of the church and piety. Um, and so Kuiper had some critics, especially on some big themes for him, like common grace. And so reading some of those, too, as you dive into Kuiper, I think is, is really helpful. Someone like Klaus Skilder and his work, Christ and Culture, is also now translated for us into English. Uh, and there's also a new Skilder reader edited by George Harring, Richard Mao, both of whom are authors in our book, and Marinus DeYoung uh, that's coming out very soon from Lexham Press as well. And I think all of those kind of help round out a picture of Piper, both in his life and work by Mao and Bratt, uh, his meditations, and then some of the responses to his themes um, by someone like Skilder. No, that's all really helpful. And we'll make sure for listeners' sake to include a link to all of those recommended resources in the show notes, as well as a link to purchase this really excellent book that I encourage listeners to grab as well, Calvinism for a Secular Age. Well, Jess and Robert, I just want to thank you, one, for your work, uh, for your skilled labor. I know editing a volume is uh, difficult at times and brings with it its own challenges. So thank you for your work on that and really appreciate you all taking time out of your busy teaching schedules to join us today on the Digital Public Square. Hey, Jason, thanks for having us. It's been a delight. Thanks so much for spending time with us today talking about this book. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we appreciate your time. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Jessica and Robert Justra and learn more about their new book as well as the recommended resources that we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.